morning, everyone. As Sam was saying, how, how excellent it's been, hasn't it? Hearing everything God has been saying to us this morning. But I could probably just say amen and sit down if I wanted to. But, but I'm, I'm just confident that God just wants to re-emphasize some of the things that has already been brought this morning. Uh, and maybe speak to us anew in, in some other areas. So like Sam's already said, I'm continuing our series. And just one name, I'm speaking on Jesus as King. Rearranged my papers already. Right. Yeah, leave it there. Um, so, we've already looked at Jesus as prophet, Jesus as priest, uh, and they're very much things that we see glimpses of in the Old Testament, don't we, and fulfilled in one way or another. And actually, over the last few weeks, we've heard how actually Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of those. Uh, and actually, in, in some way now, as we are in Christ, if we put our faith in Jesus and we are saved, we're, we feel that fulfill those roles in some sort of subordinate role as well, don't we? So, for example, a prophet is about making a way to, Jesus, uh, to God and proclaiming who he is. And yet that's what we get to do now. We get to do that to the nations. And so today I want to unpack what it means for Jesus to be king. There are three main areas that I want to focus on. I want to look at our need for a king. I want to look at Jesus the king. And I want to look at the king's kingdom. But just before I start, uh, the song that this series was based around is called How Sweet Their Name. And I just feel God really prompted me to read the chorus of that song. And I just think that it's something that God wants to be highlighting to us today and speaking to us about. So I'm just going to read it. It says, Just one name I adore. Just one name awakes my soul. Just one name above them all. Jesus. I just want to pray for us that that would be true. That, that, that might not be something that we just proclaim, but actually that would be a rooted truth, a, the foundation in our lives as Jesus, the one name that I adore. God, I just thank you so much for how you've been speaking to us this morning already. I thank you so much that you are our king, that you reign over all. And Lord, I just pray by your grace, help us to let you reign on the throne in our hearts, the throne in our minds, that it will just be a natural overflow that you are the very centre of us in all that we do. We ask this in your name. Amen. So, the need for a king. I think if we look at the world around us, we can see that there seems to be a hierarchical system in place. And I know that word hierarchy has a lot of negative connotations. We can think that that means oppression, can't we? And actually, there's a lot in the world and in the business world at the moment where people are like, we need to go away from this name. We need to go away from this word. It's not a good word. It brings oppression and things like this. But actually, I think that as we look around the world, uh, whether it's looking at humanity, or whether it's looking at the animal kingdom, whether it's looking at nature, there are laws, there are structures, and there's order to things, aren't there? And I think actually when things are done in terms of hierarchy in a positive manner, it can actually be really beneficial. I don't know if any of the rest of you have been watching any of Dynasties, the new David Attenborough <laughs> uh, series on the BBC. And their first episode was about apes, or chimpanzees to be precise. And it was following a troop of chimpanzees in West Africa. 
And the alpha male was called David. And it was following how he was trying to stay as the alpha male in the group. And maybe others were jostling for position, trying to push him off the top. Uh, and I can't say if his motives were good <laughs> for being on top. But the reality is that that troop needed a leader. And though others might have been jostling for position and trying to take control, actually the group functioned best, had the best chance of survival when they were together and when someone was leading them and keeping the order. We see alphas in, well, you get male alphas, you get female alphas, you get uh, both depending on the type of animal group. Uh, in the animal kingdom, there's lions, apes, horses, deer, even ants and, and uh, bees have queens or alphas, don't they? Like leading and keeping order. And so I think as we look around the world around us, we can see that in humanity as well, can't we? Take our nation, for example. We have the government. We have county councils. We have the town council. We have all these different things that are meant to make where we live a prosperous, fair, good place. But actually, many of those things are corrupt, aren't they? And actually, we see as we look at the world around us, and it's on the news a lot about these different systems, and they're actually, they're meant to be good, and they're put in place for good, but things become corrupt, or they just don't quite work out to plan. Other examples could be schools, emergency services, even in churches, and we see it in shops as well. Um, there's these different levels of authority. And why? What is the purpose of this? It stops chaos. It stops us all trying to go our own way. I think we all have ideas, don't we, about we have our own political views about who would be best to lead the country. We all have our own views about football, if you like football. So you probably still have your own view. If you don't like football, you don't like it. But the reality is, you might think, oh, my team did so rubbish. That referee made a bad decision. If I was referee, I wouldn't have made that decision. If I was leading the England team, we would have actually won the World Cup. We can think these different things, can't we? And we all have different ideas of what is best. Take Brexit, for example. Theresa May has her plan, her idea of what she thinks is best, but you can see that her own political party is deeply divided by it. There's this, this unrest, isn't there? And everyone says, no, I think we should do it this way, I think we should do it this way, and no, this way is better. But the reality is, it was on the news this morning, is she doesn't have a crystal ball. She doesn't know. We don't know. None of us know in terms of Brexit. Well, I didn't think I'd be doing political talk this morning. It's not even in my notes. But none of us knew that... Uh, none of us know what the diff if different decisions were made, what the outcome would be. Um, but we need leadership. And when it's done well, it brings freedom. And it's the same like when I was looking at these examples of schools or... Uh, shops and all these different things that leadership is in place that they function at their best that they function well that if they're providing a service that they provide the best service possible as we look throughout history we can see again and again that there have been flawed kings flawed queens, flawed leaders there's this sense that we get that power corrupts isn't it? I mean I don't think we can take films as evidence for how necessary life truly is. But we see it like 
24 might be a good example, a series, that um, people want to do good. Lots of people want to do good. They give their all to doing their best. But when they actually get into positions of control themselves and positions of power, decisions come along where there's that for the greater good. It's like, do I corrupt myself a little bit? That for the greater good. I can do this or help these people or things like that. And I think anyone that, that assumes authority or power in this flawed world that we live in, in this sinful world, is going to come across those decisions where you have to face, actually, oh, I could just do this, I could just do that to, to make the world a better place or for the greater good. Uh, Timothy, I was listening to a Timothy Keller talk and he was talking about how us as a church... And through what the Bible says, we know that because the world is sinful, we can never be ruled well by just one human leader. There will always be corruption. They will always make mistakes. I mean, take David, for example, in the Bible. King David, he was a man after God's own heart. How we all learn, yearn to be like that. We learn, 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 learn. We yearn to be like that. We yearn to be after God's own heart, to be recognised as that, for God to say that about us. And yet... He was flawed in the end, wasn't he? He was flawed and he made a mistake. So why do we have this inbuilt thing within us? It's almost like in our DNA, isn't it? There's this thing that, that okay, we, we recognise that authority can be bad, that it corrupts, that actually it's not necessarily the best thing and that we might go away from it. But again and again and again it crops up. We can even see it in folklore. Take things like King Arthur, uh, the king that came to destroy the evil in the world. And that when he was ruling, his kingdom was in peace. When he was ruling, the evil was squashed. Well, it's the same with Robin Hood. And you take John as king, or Prince John wants to be king, doesn't he? And he's corrupt. But there's this hope, there's this expectation that the good king, that King Richard is coming back. And that when he comes back, the evil and the tyranny will be sorted out. The really interesting thing is in these folklores, if you take King Arthur, for example, what uh, legend has it that it has on his gravestone is this. Let me just find my place. Uh, complete, yeah. It's the trouble when you speak off the top of your head. Um... Okay, so it's meant to say on his uh, tombstone, King wants and King to be. Anybody else recognise that? That's a picture of Christ for us, isn't it? Of, yes, that's a slightly flawed picture, but, there, but there's this hope, there's this expectation that the good king, the good king that defeated evil, though he died, he is going to come back and he's going to come back in glory and he's going to bring a good, righteous reign. So why is there this need for a king? God knows that we need a king. In fact, from the beginning of time, he has ordained that we should have one. It is built into our DNA. We saw this expressed in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They lived under God's rule and God's protection. They had all they needed. They had abundance. They were given authority to rule and reign over creation. You might say they were subordinate kings to the king. 
So if we were created to walk in relationship with God, to be co-heirs with Christ, then kingship is in our DNA. No wonder why we see kings and queens throughout all of history. No wonder why it is in folklore. There is this need for us to have a king. There is this need built within us. And so I want to look at the Bible's answer to this king. The Old Testament sets the stage very clearly for telling the rule and the reign of our saviour king over Israel and over the nations. We often hear people say, I was born to do this. I finally found my calling. Or we can wrestle with things, can't we? Like, am I doing the right job? Is this the right job for me? Should I be doing something else? Is, is this the right person for me to marry? These, these might be... I don't wrestle with that one anymore, just so you know. But <laughs> these might be things that we have wrestled with or we do wrestle with or we w- might wrestle with in the future. But the king, Jesus, he knew his destiny. When he was being questioned by Pilate when he was on trial in John 18... He says to Pilate, you say that I am king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. It's all too easy to reject Jesus' kingship. We see it with Adam and Eve. They did it in the Garden of Eden. The Israelites, when when Samuel was their judge... They, they, saw, they were struggling as a people and they'd been disobedient to God. And rather than just turning to God, they, they petitioned Samuel. They say, let us have a king. Look at all the nations around us. Look how well they're doing. They have kings. Let us have a king. And this deeply upset Samuel. And then when Samuel's talking to God about it, praying to God about it, God says, it's not you they've rejected. It's me they've rejected as their king. We see it again in the New Testament. Jesus was born to be king. In Matthew 2, it talks about the wise men coming. They come to Herod's palace. They followed the star. They know the star means there is a new king. The king of the Jews is born. The king of the Jews is here. They come to pay homage to him. And yet Herod, he rejects it, doesn't he? He rejects Jesus' kingship. He's like, no, I'm king. You can't be king on this throne. I'm king on this throne. And so tries to have him killed. But Jesus proclaims his kingship in many different ways. He proclaimed the kingdom of God is at hand. He proclaimed it by his preaching, by signs and wonders. In the Gospel of Luke, we see one point when he preaches, he stands up and declares he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 that says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set, a liberty those, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This is what God's kingdom looks like. Proclaiming good news to the poor. Liberty to the captives. Those that are blind being able to see. Those that are oppressed being set free. He was even welcomed as a king by the people of Israel. He was, as, as he was coming into Jerusalem, uh, it's called his triumphal entry in the Bible, and we'll turn to it in a second, Matthew 21. They welcomed him. They proclaimed that their Messiah had come. 
And yet, just a few days later, they rejected him and said, crucify him, crucify him. I just want to take a look right now at Matthew 21 and just, just look at how Jesus actually declares his kingship through this passage. So we're going to read from verses 1 to 11, and hopefully it will come up on the screens. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks and spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Galilee. Jesus cleanses the temple. Is the next section? It was in my notes, but I'm not going to do that. So Jesus declares his authority by riding on a donkey. This is something that I think we're, most of us are quite familiar with this passage, aren't we? We've, we've heard it quite quite a lot. But if you were to hear this for the first time, you'd probably wonder, why is Jesus riding on a donkey? Why is he riding on a colt? What, what's the purpose of this? Well, in the Old Testament, riding on a donkey was a sign of royalty. We see when King David wanted to pass on his reign to, uh, to his son Solomon. So Solomon was about to be anointed king. And he knows that God has chosen Solomon to be king after him. He tells the prophet, take Solomon through the streets to where you're going to anoint him, riding on a donkey. Riding on my donkey. So we know instantly here, Jesus is saying, I am royalty. I am a king. I am the anointed one. Then we also see in the passage that actually, this is also to fulfil the prophecy from Zechariah 9 about being the promised king. And this is where it's really important. It's so easy, isn't it, just to take that like that, but it's important to look at the context. If we look at the context of that passage, we actually see that the prophecy is speaking about speaking peace to the nations. It's about being a king to the nations. So Jesus isn't just saying, I'm a king, I am the promised king, I'm coming to fulfil the prophecy of the saviour king, the Messiah. He's actually saying, yes, I've come to do that, but not just for Israel, but for the nations, but for the world. We also see most of the crowds that were gathered around 
Jesus were laying down their cloaks. They put their cloaks on the donkeys. They put their cloaks on the roads. This is also a sign from the Old Testament of when a king is being anointed, you lay your cloak down. You put it down as a sign of submission. So the people were saying, Jesus, we submit to you. We submit to your rule. We recognise you coming as the king. They even cut palm leaves and laid them down. And that is a, that's actually a symbol uh, for the Israelites of Jewish nationalism. It's a symbol of victory. So they're saying, you are the victorious king that is coming for us. The people were behind Jesus. They were rallying behind him. They recognised him as the Messiah coming. But yet, their view of him was slightly skewed. They thought he was the one that was going to come and restore the physical kingdom of Israel. They thought that Jesus would lead them in a revolt against the Romans. That he would establish the Jewish kingdom again. But Jesus didn't come on a war horse. We see later in Revelation that Jesus comes on the war horse. When he comes back in glory, when he comes back to save his church and judge the world, he comes dressed for battle. But here, it says that he comes humble or lowly. This means he's gentle, he's meek, he's mild. I found a note that I found in a, in a study Bible very, very helpful for this. It says, the people were looking for a warlike Messiah who would lead them into battle. But Jesus showed a greater power of humble wisdom and penetrating love. They recognised him as king, but they didn't recognise his kingdom. They didn't recognise what he was king of. So now I just want to spend a, a moment unpacking the king's kingdom and what that looks like. We see in John 18 when Jesus is speaking to Pilate, that it doesn't only say that I am the king, that that's the reason I came. He also says, my kingdom is not of this world. So we could, look, we could look at kingdoms of this world. We could even look at kingdoms from the Old Testament. We could look at the kingdom of David. And we could maybe start to get some sort of picture of what Christ was like. I mean, it's interesting that God chose a shepherd to be king. And I'm not going to pick up too much on that. I'll let Neil do that next week. But it shows what kind of king Jesus was, doesn't it? So Jesus came as a servant king to lay his life down for us that we may have life. He didn't come to destroy a nation, but to destroy the power of sin and death that we might have eternal life in him. And though the price has been paid... We won't yet see the full fruits of this until Christ returns. So why is that? Why don't we see the full fruit of what Jesus has done now? Well, there's this tension. There's this tension we find in the New Testament that the kingdom of God is here. It is now, but it is not yet. The decisive battle has been won by Jesus on the cross. Amen. The victory is guaranteed Amen. and it is coming. But it won't be until Jesus returns on Judgment Day. The Bible refers to this era as the Day of Salvation. And it's our role as the church to make disciples of all nations, to bring God's kingdom across the whole world, 
so that as many people may be saved as possible. And we can be confident in doing this because he says, I have all authority. All authority has been given to me and I send you. So we're sent out in the authority of the king of kings who is seated on the throne. But this is the day of salvation and that's why the tension is here. Because it's an opportunity for people to be saved. It's an opportunity for us at church to take God's kingdom out into the world and to show them who the king is, who the saviour is, who they need. And without that opportunity, if Jesus was to come back today riding on the war horse, it would be too late. And so there's this tension, this tension that we can't fully understand. We can't fully get our heads around But he is a just, loving king who is in control. And we can trust that as we seek his kingdom in our everyday lives, that he will move. He might not move how we expect, but he will move. Though this tension is so clear and obvious, we do see clear examples of his kingdom coming. John the Baptist, when he baptised Jesus, declared, this is the one we've been waiting for. This is him. This is the one I prepared the way for. But yet when he was in prison, just before he was killed, he was, like, he was starting to question, wasn't he? Maybe he misinterpreted what the kingdom of God was going to be like when it came. So he sent his disciples, this is in Matthew 11, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the king? Are you the king that we've been waiting for? that our Old Testament prophecies were talking about. And this is what it says. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Oops, that's the same line again. It's good to know though. (laughs) And the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them, and blesses the one who is not offended by me. Jesus is declaring, I am the king, and this is what my kingdom looks like. The blind, they do receive their sight. The lame, they walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. If you want to know what my kingdom looks like, as it's not of this world, this is it. And these are the things that we should be expecting to see. And yes, like I said, there's this tension. But we're taught to pray, aren't we? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The Bible doesn't put a limit on how much of his kingdom we will see today. We're just told to seek it. And, And we're also told that when we seek the king, he shall be found. And I think as we seek the King, as we seek to make much of Him and to glorify Him in our lives, to show Him to the world out there, even if the things that we do just make people ask questions, it's causing them to seek, isn't it? It's causing them to start seeking the King. So we can clearly see that His kingdom is a place of freedom. It brings wholeness, both spiritual and physical. Though we won't see the fullness now, we are to seek it. Jesus is not just a king of a nation, but he is the king. 
He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is King of the universe. I haven't even got time today to go into how he has control over creation. He calmed the storm, didn't he? He multiplied, multiplied the five fish, five loaves and two fish, didn't he, to feed the 5,000. It's not just over things to do with humanity. He has control. He is the king on the throne. And the amazing thing is, like what Sam was talking to us about last week, and it's come up again this morning, our king is not like an earthly monarchy, is it? Kept out of the way of the public for most of the time. They can seem aloof. They can seem untouchable. They're certainly not available to us on an everyday basis. You have to be invited into their presence. And that's usually because you have done something special. It's usually you have achieved something. You deserve to come and meet me because you have achieved something special. Yes, Jesus invites us. But his invitation is an open one to whoever believes in him. To whoever puts their trust in him. And that invitation is open to us all the time. It says in Hebrews 4, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So as as Christians, we have constant free access to our king, to the king who sits on the throne. So we have seen our need for a king. We have looked at how Jesus declares himself as king, how he fulfills Old Testament prophecy. We see how when his kingdom comes, it brings wholeness, both spiritually and physically. Yes, there is this tension of the now and the not yet. But we can be confident that he tells us to pray, let your kingdom come. And he has authority, all authority. So we don't have to be worried We don't have to be scared because our king has gone into battle before us. He has led the charge. I just want to finish again with uh, the chorus of that song and just let's let it be the melody of our hearts. Just one name I adore. Just one name awakes my soul. Just one name above them all. Jesus.